ecosystems are an incredibly interwoven world of interdependencies, of actions and reactions, of roles and responsibilities. In an ecosystem, all processes depend on one another, on all the parts that make up the ecosystem. In the vast ecosystem of the oceans, a critical role is played by sharks. And they have played that role for a very long time. Shark conservation, protecting the oldest species on Earth, is our focus in this hour of an organic conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Helberg. Just as with other large predators, from grizzly bears to wolves, humans have hunted these species and in many regions of the planet have brought them to near or complete extinction. New scientific studies show the critical importance that those animals had and have on the ecosystems that they are a part of. As for the oceans, sharks play this critical role. There are over 400 shark species in the world, and today we will hear about their function, their challenges, and what is being done to protect them. Shark conservation, protecting the oldest species on Earth. All that and more is coming up in just a minute here on An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helberg, and this show is brought to you by Bowman College, a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and the culinary arts. Become a nutrition consultant or a natural chef at one of their campuses or learn from home in a self-paced mentored distance learning program. For more information on a degree in holistic nutrition or culinary arts, bowmancollege.org. Thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com. And Fry Vineyards, America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated. Fry is dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming. Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Award-winning wines at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. And we are back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. There are over 400 shark species in the world. And today we will hear from an expert about their function, their challenges, and what is being done around the world to protect them. Shark conservation, protecting the oldest species on Earth. That's our focus in this hour. And on the phone with me is now Dean Fessler, Jr. He's the Education Director at the Shark Research Institute out of Princeton, New Jersey. That's sharks.org. What a great website name. And Dean has, I believe, spent as much time underwater as he has above when I read about his bio and credentials. Dean, do we have you with us? Yes, sir. And that is correct. <laughs> since, since 1977, I have spent 
equally as much time either underwater or waiting in line in an airport to board the plane to do so. That is amazing. And we do want to talk about shark conservation today. And I actually want to start by an interesting fact. It's kind of the opposite effect that the movie had on many other people, including me. You began swimming with sharks after watching Jaws. How was it possible, or at least it coincided with that, Why did that inspire you rather than scare you? Well, actually, I'm a perfect example of environment and timing. <laughs> Having grown up literally less than a mile from where the movie and subsequent book Jaws was written in Princeton, New Jersey, I was exposed to the concept of shark diving well before many of my contemporaries were. And prior to that, there was a lesser-known documentary called Blue Water, White Death, which was released in 1970. And it was also done by a gentleman who lives less than a mile from where I do, prominent underwater cinematographer named Stan Waterman. So in 1970, I was taken to a drive-in theater as a very impressionable young 10-year-old boy with his father who loved to go fishing. And back then, drive-in theaters had 100-meter screens. So at the conclusion of the film, this massive 100-meter shark goes swimming across the screen, and my jaw dropped in amazement. And I leaned over and told my father, someday that's going to be me in that cage. So I started studying sharks Soon thereafter, five years later, Jaws came out, and I was already loaded with years of current information that most of the general populace was not privy to. So when I went to finally see the movie Jaws, I was sitting there picking out all of the flaws in the animal. And wait a minute, a white shark can't do that. Wait a minute, that's not right. While everybody else was screaming and running out of the theater, I was laughing and critiquing the film. Well, that certainly must have helped keeping a real relationship with that amazing species. There are over 400 of shark species in the world, and they are kind of a window into the ocean. What do they teach us about the, the state of, of the oceans around the world? Well, if I can backtrack real quickly, um, current technology has enabled us to go deeper into areas of the ocean we've never seen before, and now... The real current textbooks list over 500 species of sharks that have been identified. Wow, and thanks it, for that it, correction. It adds, it adds further proof to how critical sharks are to all elements of the oceanic ecosystem, from the cold water to the temperate waters to the deep, frigid waters that we're just now discovering. And there's several different avenues in which sharks play a critical role in maintaining the health of oceanic ecosystems. But I think, I think the most significant is, is that of balance, as being typically referred to as an apex or number one top-of-the-line predator. They stand at the top of the food chain and maintain a balance of all the species further down the line. That way, one animal cannot take over an area and reproduce to a point where there's not enough food for the other organisms. And as a result, the ecosystem will eventually degrade 
and break down. Hmm. In addition to that, and I emphasize this with my younger students, the sharks really serve as a, a cleaning system. I ask the children, does anybody here take out the garbage or the recycling bins for their parents? And most of the hands go up. And I tell the kids, well, that's what sharks are doing in the reef systems and in the ocean. They're removing animals that are sick or have died, thus preventing disease to spread, thus promoting healthier populations down the road. And since sharks have a very strong immune system and a very slow digestive system, they fill that role perfectly. And that is true, I believe, for, you know, at least for wolves, that they would always go for the weaker or sick animal. They believed because it was easier to hunt, but actually it is kind of nature's cleanup crew to make sure the herd stays genetically the strongest it can be. You're saying that's the same with sharks? Absolutely. It, it, it promotes the old adage of not only survival of the fittest, but then, as you alluded to, the genetic superiority provides stronger offspring and stronger populations down the genetic line and increase the chance for survival, which is what we're all just trying to do. Sharks are not the man-eating monsters they're made out to be. If they were, people would be bitten, mauled, attacked, whatever word you want to apply to it, every single day around the world. They're just simply trying to survive and pass on healthy genes just like you and me. Just as sharks are threatened uh, with, with many other species around the world, in reverse, they also teach us about the state of the ocean. What are we learning? What are you seeing? What are you learning from them right now about the state of the oceans? Well, sadly, they are often indicated, indicator species, or the term indicator species is used for them, sort of like the old canary in a coal mine. If the canary died while you were in the coal mine, you knew something was wrong. Well, people who are on the oceans or utilize the oceans for whatever reason, they have come to learn that if a ecosystem is healthy and vibrant, a shark population will be equally healthy and vibrant. There will be a large number of animals, but there will be a large number of prey items all the way down the smallest little you know, worm, all the way up to the large apex predator shark. So if you come into an area and the sharks are either low in number or have disappeared completely from when they used to be very robust, it's an indicator that something has gone wrong. If, if the top of the chain comes apart, it's only a matter of time before the rest follows suit, mm -hmm. like a game of dominoes. We're speaking with Dean Fessler, Jr. He's the education director at the Shark Research Institute. He's joining us today from Princeton, New Jersey. And again, that amazing website is sharks.org. Dean, what are they saying right now when you, when you look at different oceans around the world? How much are sharks threatened? Or in other words, how imbalanced is the ecosystem? Or is it not? Is it in fair shape? Is it getting better? What's your read on it right now? Excellent questions that you'll get a broad range of answers depending on where one individual's passions or, dare I say, financial situations are. I'm obviously a very strong shark advocate. I support the results of science, and to be short, the results are grim. All the scientific 
data indicate a majority of shark populations are dropping. Uh, some, some are threatened with extinction within our lifetime, if, you know, the numbers being collected are accurate. Numbers are often collected from fishermen, and the fishermen's data is showing that they're catching smaller and smaller individuals, and they have to go further and further out to sea to find them. Also, not to be completely negative, there have been some successes where areas where protection zones have been put into place, like off of Cape Cod here in the United States, uh, the seal population was protected. As a result, the seals have flourished, and now the white sharks are returning to that area because there's available food. However, there's other areas where sharks have been completely removed, even from, not from a fishing perspective, but area where divers would go to encounter the sharks. And that's one of the roles my institute plays, is to develop ecotourism opportunities. So people can go and actually safely dive with a shark, if there is such a term, and continually generate a revenue stream year after year after year, rather than letting a commercial fishing operation come in and decimate a population in a single day. And that's really the largest threat to shark species around the globe, is the commercial fishing operation. They have developed vessels that are literally processing plants at sea and can come in and wipe out just thousands of sharks in a very short period of time. And we know they have very slow reproductive rates. So it can, take, it can literally take decades for an area with the sharks to return if no other complications come along their way. So globally, overall, we're in a bad place. So I wanted to ask you about the greatest threats, and you were saying it is fishing directly for shark. Uh, there's an environmental concerns, there's plastics, there's um, you know others, other fish species that are being fished or seal populations going down, but you're saying actually still the direct hunt for sharks is the single greatest threat to most shark species? Uh, with that, without question. It, it's the global demand for shark fin, which is used in shark fin soup. And there is a smaller market for the meat, but the comparison is exponential in value. I've seen shark fin bring in over $100, $150 for a single pound. And that's because the fins are flat. They store in a boat very easily. You can salt them and cure them and keep them for rather a long time. The meat, on the other hand, oils quickly and barely brings in maybe a few pennies a pound. So as a result, as the global demand for shark fin rises, as global population increases and overfishing pressure increases, the populations are not given a chance to rebound. And as a result, the market for the fin has even developed a black market where billions of dollars That's what that B are involved because the value has gone up. It's a simple matter of supply and demand. We had the filmmaker of Racing Extinction on the show just a few months ago, and he was talking about the impact um, that documentary had. And, of course, the Cove before 
on uh, the consumption in this case of dolphin meat and he was hoping that racing extinction which really focused uh, a, a good portion on sharks and shark fin soup hopefully will have a similar effect are you seeing that those efforts are actually changing people's minds uh, because see, the show is produced in california you are on the east coast shark fin soup is not really a topic at least in in the world i live in uh, here regionally or even u.s based but of course on the other side of the planet Uh, it is a, a, a staple almost. It is a very common food. Are you seeing those efforts uh, having an effect? I believe those efforts are having an effect in changing public perception, which I think is the critical first step. But not behavior, uh -huh. potentially. Yes, because the sharks are, unfortunately, a, a very difficult animal for most people to feel sorry for. Most people are still kind of afraid of them, and deep down they kind of question, do I really want to help protect an animal that might eat me and my family at the beach? And that's a sad result of many of the issues we discussed earlier about earlier portrayal, and that culminated with the fact that in some areas it is a staple of food that has been generations in existence, and it's very difficult for any organization to convince, you know, a large population to stop doing what you've been doing since your grandfather's grandfather was around. But, again, getting back to the change in public perception, I think eventually we're going to see a global shift because in addition to the overall species disappearing, and I know your program is often in support of healthy eating, we have found that a lot of the shark fins are contaminated with all of the global pollution you referenced. And it's culminated with the slow digestive process of the shark. So as a result, there is a lot of remaining pollutants in the shark tissues. And when you boil it down into a soup, you're actually extracting uh, everything from lead to methylated mercury, which Believe you me, I'm not a physician, but I know that's not, not the healthy uh, dinner they're hoping to serve their family. When all of that you know, gets processed into the next generation, we're starting to understand the importance the sharks play, in addition to the fact that we need to clean the oceans, so we really should leave them alone. Uh, that's really what gives me enough hope to go on. Is that known in, in countries who do consume shark meat or shark fin soup, um, the health implications or pot potential dangers because of the accumulation of uh, yeah. environmental toxins? Is that publicized enough to maybe We, hold people our, at bay? Our institute and various other organizations have done explicit, intentional information campaigns mm -hmm. to that very topic. We thought that was one of our best tools that if people realize, you know, hey, this is poison, I better not eat it, um, it would generate sort of a, a ban on it, shall we say. But to this point, a lot of people, just like global warming, I'm not deterred. whether you believe it or not, they don't want to hear what some foreign group, some nonprofit shark-hugging organization has to say, because it's, it's a, an effect that would take years and years to manifest. 
So unless it's an immediate danger, people tend to avoid it and ignore it and blame us for being alarmist. Sure. We're speaking with Dean Fressler, Jr., the Education Director at the Shark Research Institute, Princeton, New Jersey. That's shark.org. Dean, stay with us. We want to hear about what is being done actually to create sanctuaries and in the overall protection. I know things have moved quite far because of your work and the work of other organizations that are finally acknowledging sharks uh, or being acknowledged around the world as critical for the ecosystem and new laws and protection measures have been put in place. We want to hear all about that. This is an organic conversation. Our focus in this hour is sharks protecting the oldest species on Earth. And we'll be right back with so much more. This show is brought to you by Equal Exchange a worker-owned cooperative that ensures your food is environmentally sound and socially just. Equal Exchange has been creating big change for small farmers for over 30 years by offering certified organic and fair trade coffee, tea, chocolate, bananas, and avocados. More on Equal Exchange at equalexchange.coop. That's equalexchange.coop. And by Utterly offering beautiful and fun clothing for boys and girls that is made entirely from the unused fabric of prominent apparel manufacturers. Each garment reduces our eco-footprint by preventing this fabric from reaching the waste stream. Utterly, making sustainability fashionable and fashion sustainable. For more information, utterly.co. That's U-T-T-E-R-L-Y dot C-O. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. Sharks, protecting the oldest species on Earth is our focus. Ecosystems are an incredibly interwoven world of interdependencies and just as they are on land, in this case in the water, sharks as the apex predator play a critical role in keeping populations of all kinds of ocean critters healthy and robust. Really kind of the police when it comes to illness and disease and genetic weakness. So, Dean, you you were you kind of were saying that for the overall health of the ocean, we would do best protecting sharks because that would even increase fish populations uh, or keep them as healthy as possible. Is that a di too direct of a um, correlation or are you saying without the shark the the oceans more or less will collapse in disease basically well I, i've heard very dire predictions if we were to remove sharks from the oceanic ecosystem that again the entire ocean would collapse and if that were to happen the actual oxygen that phytoplankton released into our atmosphere would reduce and we could actually be struggling just to exist ourselves. Um, I'm not willing to go that far, but I have seen direct shifts in environmental populations when shark populations have removed. A simple example happened right here where I live. Our local sharks like to eat stingrays. The stingrays like to eat the clams and the scallops and the mussels and the lobsters that our fishermen like to catch and sell to their patrons. Well, we saw a major reduction in our local shark population 
as a result, there was an explosion in our stingray population, and they consumed vast quantities of the shellfish and put our fishermen out of a job. So if you want to look at it from economic ramifications, we have direct correlation. What we do know is that if the sharks are removed, there will be a shift within the whole food chain and how animals adapt and readapt is the question mark that only time will reveal. And in regard to threats, you were saying that the consumption of sharks and shark fin soup is by far the number one threat to, to shark populations. What about others? What about environmental degradation, global warming? Do you see that having an impact as well? Environmental degradation, absolutely. Um, again, just like all of us, you know, they need clean water and a sustainable food source to survive and reproduce. When those elements are removed from overdevelopment or pollution or overfishing, the shark either starves or has to relocate. And in correlation with global warming, which again is a subject onto itself, I am not a climatologist, but I can speak to the fact that many sharks are migratory in nature. They've been following certain routes around our planet for eons. But we, what we are seeing is even with a slight temperature variation, that a shift within known currents, like here on the East Coast, we have the Gulf Stream. We're seeing as more and more polar ice is melting and the cold water falls deep into the oceanic basins. Cold water is heavy, so it falls to the bottom. So it pushes the warmer water up. So patterns known currents are being disrupted and changing. So fish that follow those currents, like in Finding Nemo, remember when the animals were surfing through the currents? Well, all of those currents now are, are shifting, kind of being redistributed into areas we don't know yet. And the sharks that have been following those paths, again, for countless ages, have to basically go back to school and figure out where their prey items are. If they don't, they'll starve. So again, all of these things are kind of in flux, and none of the indicators are good. But when you have people who won't even commit to the fact that there is something going on with our climate, then we have a problem. You are the education director of the Shark Research Institute, and protection is, is really one of the main areas that you work on Uh, what is being done in conservation agreements? I read that there are now, there's an agreement that covers eight species of sharks out of what we now know, 500 plus. Can you tell us more about it? What are you focused on right now? What's the most important work in that field? Most important work that we're doing right now involves the CITES convention, which is going on in South Africa at the end of next month. CITES is the Convention in International Trade in Endangered Species, which is also a United Nations treaty organization, which represents the largest and most powerful of all treaties engaged in the protection of plants and animals. They have over 177 member countries, and it's sort of the Olympic Games for environmentalists. And each country sends its delegation with data and justification get animals 
listed on Appendix 1 or Appendix 2. And that's basically when you hear an anecdotal reference that this animal is threatened with extinction, it's these meetings where those designations take place. And our delegation is getting ready to head there uh, at the end of September with the hope of increasing protection for the sharks already listed and adding to the list, as well as supporting other animals, elephants, rhinos, any animals that really need protection. It's these delegations who meet, barter, make deals. So in your work and at that conference next month that you are preparing for now, how open do you see countries are uh, to listen to your research, to your findings, and to recognize that in a way they're shooting themselves in the foot, even though they have strong economic reasoning for exploiting specific species or bringing them to the brink of extinction, but seeing that the overall ecology will suffer even greater than perhaps the economic gain. How open are countries to change? There is a real broad range of representation at these meetings. There are those who are like us. Their primary concern is protection of the animals for countless generations to come. There are others that are there. I won't name any names, but their focus is the exact opposite. They are there to block efforts like our own, and not just sharks. There's people that want to continue the trade in ivory for elephants and horn for rhinoceros. So they send delegations with the opposite agenda to try and circumvent the process of protection with after hours. Uh, it'll come down to a simple matter of money. Sometimes you'll get a vote in your favor, and then you'll find out the next day overnight the vote was flip-flopped. And they won't tell you why, but the assumption is that a large amount of money either changed hands or something else in the future was promised for that vote. Very similar to traditional politics, um, but with a larger element at stake than just a four-year term. And so you have people who are thinking long-term, and you have people that are thinking short-term economics. And I would think once those protections are in place if and, and success has happened in, in recent years because of your work, how hard is it to enforce this? Uh, this is the oceans. It's even harder yes. than to do it on land. The oceans are vast and deep, and these countries are often very far away. There's very little money to even do this work uh, that you're so dedicated to, and much less to work on, on on protection and then work on enforcement in addition. How is that done? Well, sadly, you've hit on one of the most frustrating elements of what we do. We can spend years um, during the legislative process, play everything by the rules, get all of the approvals and documentation in place, and then the matter of enforcement comes into place. And as you alluded to, the ocean is so vast it's literally impossible to enforce even areas that are protected. Uh, poachers are very competent, and they are very dedicated. You have people that are trying to feed their starving family. They are not concerned what bill was just passed in New Jersey. They want to bring home that shark to feed 
their starving children. So they are motivated on, on another level. And sadly, enforcement issues are often overrun by economic short-term gain. There are some countries that have figured it out, and the enforcement issues have become militaristic in nature. They will confiscate vessels. They will imprison crews. They will burn the ships at sea. They will burn the shark meat and the shark fins as a message. But that's really just a small victory in, in a large war that, that we're kind of losing. The domestic protection and the overall education and financial status of the United States enables enforcement to be much more effective because of the general, you know, respect. But like you alluded to, if you're 10,000 miles away in, in the Western Pacific and there's no land for 1,000 miles in any direction, it's extremely difficult to enforce legislation. And that's why elements like the Sea Shepherds and the Greenpeace people uh, often resort to militaristic efforts, which, again, are effective, but then generate other problems down the line, because sometimes international law becomes compromised. Yes, and force is only one option, of course, that we can choose. You brought up ecotourism. Yes. It seems that there are enough examples now that if an ecological and economically viable solution is being presented to fishermen, they are happy to switch. What comes to mind is, again, the documentary we covered, Racing Extinction, where they built a diving Uh, area or really haven uh, for great manta rays that could people could be swimming with and diving with and it created more economic viability to that uh, town than the hunting for manta rays did before and of course they embraced that solution and it, it's now world renowned as the best place to to dive with manta rays Do you see that really being, you know, the creative solution offering economic alternatives that would, if it's really economically driven, the moment something else is as successful or as secure to feed the family, there's no reason to kill sharks anymore. Do you see that um, really be a viable option? As a matter of fact, I do. That was the cornerstone of our institutes branching out from primary shark research was to develop ecotourism in the developing countries to generate a sustainable, mm -hmm. renewable income source through ecotourism. And at the same time, it, it's certainly a lot easier to take a group of happy tourists with cameras swimming around the surface of the water all day rather than trying to capture 50,000 tons of processed, thrashing, potentially dangerous animals onto your boat and then try and sell it so it like you said the fishermen will gladly embrace it if they're given the, the education and the opportunity and basically the tools to do it successfully it's it's not a cheap or inexpensive venture to have it done right uh, the people who go on these tours uh, expect certain standards and safety being the most paramount. And when you're dealing with diving with sharks or taking people to see sharks, often you're going to remote areas. So you have a lot of hurdles to overcome. But again, it is the most, what we feel, 
most effective tool other than force to change the mindset and prepare and have a sustainable future for both the animals and the fishermen. <clears throat> Yeah, and people often say, you know, what what if we just offered an economic alternative? The just part is the difficult part to build a, a network for for tourism to be attracted for for people to go there to have the infrastructure to have the safety, the education, the training, and then make sure it's an ongoing viable source. Because the one thing you don't want to lose in all this, besides safety, is the trust. If fishermen yeah. or entire town is reliant on tourism and tourism dies because something did happen, they will be out of money and say, see, we should have never switched. So it's, it is incredibly difficult work that you are involved in. And how can people support you? If somebody listens to this and says, you know, education, uh, Shark Research Institute, Princeton, New Jersey, sharks.org. They're fascinated by your work. Dean Fessler Jr. on the phone with us in this hour of an organic conversation as the education director. If somebody wants to support you or protect sharks in, in, in their region, what can they do? Well, there's several different things they can do. First and foremost, if they enjoy consuming shark or shark fin soup, I would ask they find a viable alternative. Um, On a more basic level, we are a nonprofit organization. All of our staff is volunteer. We survive on donations and corporate grants and membership drives and leading expeditions, et cetera, et cetera. So if anyone feels they have the wherewithal to make any type of financial support to our efforts, they can certainly do that. Any amount is helpful, and every single penny is tax-deductible. If that is not an option, they can become involved politically. And by that, I mean they can write their local jurisdictions about supporting anti-finning legislation, which is going on pretty much all over the country in various stages of proposal and approval and or rejection. So I think those, those three things are the easiest way for people to become involved. If they're a certified diver and they want to actually come on some of our research expeditions, they can certainly contact us. And if all of the qualifications and availability can be coordinated, they can actually come with us and physically support our effort and have, help us collect data and possibly see something they would never, ever see in their life. Wonderful. That's Dean Fessler Jr. Dean, I do want to end with the Jaws movie again. We started with that Please. and it fascinated you to a degree. Luckily, you were already educated f to have the opposite effect. You wanted to get into the water and study sharks further and be fascinated by them ever since. Many people got scared. If you talk to a filmmaker about a you know horror movie on on jars back then you were laughing about the inaccuracy of making it a man-eating monster what's your take on those movies nowadays are you referring to perhaps the the sharknado series i mean i can't believe that since the 70s we still pick sharks uh, among other species and demonize them to such a degree where the average population actually falls for it and it just keeps cultivating this shark fear instead of being fascinated by them. And, and 
yeah, your your take on the responsibility of a filmmaker to consider that? I think the responsibility is far beyond what they realize. I believe they become blinded by the fact that most short films still sell large amounts of tickets. And I'm sadly reminded whenever a reporter calls me about a shark attack, the reporter uses the standard line, Dean, if a story bleeds, the story leads. And I'm afraid filmmakers often follow that same premise. So they still portray the shark as a very dangerous man-eating predator at the detriment to the public image And it also represents people still like to be scared. There's an element in us that enjoys just the excitement, the rush, the adrenaline of being disturbed by something. And the sharks carry a double ability to do that. Not only could they take a large chunk out of you and potentially consume you, if that's not bad enough, they're going to drown you at the same time. So as a result, they become the perfect character for a horror movie. And as a result, with the foundation of Jaws in the back of most people of my generation, it became the motivation for subsequent filmmakers, dare I use this pun, as a feeding frenzy for subsequent films. Mm -hmm. And there's only a small handful of environmental people who are now getting featured on Shark Week and programs like that that are showing the true nature of the animal and inspiring the next generation of scientists and hopefully filmmakers. Thank you so much for all your work and for spending this hour of an organic conversation with me. Wonderful to have you and good luck with that conference in South Africa at the end of next month. Thank you so much. Thank It you, was Dean. A pleasure. Good luck. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's Dean Fessler, Jr., Education Director at the Shark Research Institute out of Princeton, New Jersey. Again, the website is sharks.org. Amazing work, an amazing species. I'm Helga Helberg. This is an organic conversation. And we're switching gears now from the ocean on to the organic field. Here's the update from the produce market. What's going on this week in regard to fresh fruits and vegetables? Here's what's in season. And with us now is the voice of the San Francisco produce market, Mr. Earl Herrick of Earl's Organic Produce. We hope so, at least. Earl, are you there? Here I am, Helga. Hello. <laughs> Good. Good day. Uh, thanks for joining <laughs> us. It's, oh, getting, yeah. it's getting cold. We talked about apples last week, mm. and yeah. you, you announced apples and pears go hand in hand. It is the fall <laughs> season of domestic, if not regional, apple mm -hmm. and pear production. Um, are we yeah. are we sticking with pears today? We we are, uh, and because part of it is their their harvest is so so is so identical to the apple mm. in so many ways. You know, you start about July with the Bartlett and some other early varieties, and, and you go all the way uh, through October into November, and and many many pears get stored 
geographical areas are very similar for us. It's Northern California on the West Coast, up to Oregon and Washington, up into you know the British Columbia. So mm-hmm. you know the the pear is 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 one of my favorites. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how I ever got attached to it so well. I like maybe we just had them around the around the home. Maybe I grew up with a with a pear tree and I didn't didn't even know it. You know, there's a lot more attention that goes into the apple production where they're developing new varieties, and I mentioned, I think, a club apple last time. There's much less that I'm seeing in, in the pear world, um, but what's great about pears is you have the regular, you have the pears, you know, the Bartlett and the Bosque, and there's a good dozen-plus varieties, but then you also have this whole other subdivision, or not even subdivision, just another division, that's the Asian pear, mm. also known as an apple pear. It's got a couple different names, and they have a long list of varieties also. So when you put these two together, you have a really great uh, sense of diversity and and taste and and refreshment just and uh, and colors are just outstanding different than apples because they get a lot of styrations and, and speckling and 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 striping on on apples here there you generally get full color for example the 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 Bartlett is this great green that uh, gets softly golden as it ripens the Bosque is a brown, uh, starts out brown, heavily russeted, and then tur- turns kind of golden as it ripens. Um, that's one of the characteristics uh, of a pear is that it turns golden, whether it's the forefront color or the background. That ripeness, a good indicator, is that yellow turn gold in the background. Then you know you're on your way to ripeness. What I really like about pears is when I compare them to apples. I, I love apples, and I grew up as a German among apple, apple trees. And they have a very fresh, uh, it's not a sweetness question. They have a very uh, fresh and, and often very sweet flavor to it. But they are, for me, what I would categorize a cold piece of fruit they they are refreshing a pear maybe it is because of the sweetness or maybe it's a different kind of sugar i would consider a warm piece of fruit Uh, when i when i cut them into a salad an apple will brighten the salad a pear will pull it all together it makes it it's so nice to great that's a great point helga you know you're right i think an apple can can handle that coolness that little bit of refrigeration get that crispy in a pear you could even warm it a bit that's right and it would really uh, get great up great uh, embellishment of its flavors that come out I hadn't thought of that um, I want to name a couple varieties here I had mentioned the Bartlett and then there's the Bosque there's of course the Comis um, one, of my fa- one of my favorite is the Stark Crimson oh. which is a deep red crimson a piece of fruit tends to be a bit like the Bartlett in shape and flavor, but it's absolutely full color red. As it ripens, the red actually brightens, and it's a very delicate flesh. Again, probably the Bartlett and the, and the Star Crimson are two you do not want to wait too long on. All pears ripen from the inside out. All pears are picked um, green from the tree. Um, and the growers that know what they're doing understand when to pick them. They 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 generally walk the orchard and and pick them around the time that they know that they generally get ripened. And they and they use uh, some instruments to uh, get sugar contents off of them. And then they I think most of them refrigerate the the uh, pears for at least 24 to 48 hours before they ship them. Um, a couple other varieties. One's called a Pharrell, a French butter. 
Of course, there's always the Danju, which is a real good winter pear. Yeah, and the for, um, the Forel actually is is um, Forel is the reddish striped, right? Is that the one? Yes. Well, it, it yeah, it definitely has some red on it, no doubt about yeah, it. Yeah, Forel is the European word for trout. Oh, you're, that's right. And, and the, actually, the colors look like you're looking at the belly of a trout. Yeah, those, the side. those speckles are called uh, lentils. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you're right. That's so great you brought that up. Yeah, they're, they're one of the smallest pairs. Yeah, just a beautiful, though, beautiful. You're, you know, you're right. And um, they have great flavor. Uh, it's, um, <laughs> you have the lentils and trout. I just read that myself. And they tend to, and also they yellow as they ripen also. Yes. Um, then there's the Concord and... Um, Concord is a, looks a lot like a Bartlett. A some, long neck. Some, sometimes, as a dessert, you get a Williams Christ in in Europe. Is that a specific variety, or is that any variety that is prepared in a specific way? No, that is that is a that is a Southern Hemisphere uh, pear, and um, my memory is that it's called a Williams Bartlett. Uh-huh. But it's not it's, it's not a Bartlett that we understand. It's it's. A little bit different, but it's grown in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, incredibly rich in yeah, flavor I, I and sweet. We don't see a lot of them here. They almost all come up in the eastern seaboard, <sighs> and if there's enough demand, they truck them across the United States. What do you do with them? I mean, you eat much produce just out of yeah. your hand, but uh, I just love any, any you know, maybe persimmon and pear cut into a salad makes it a Christmas yeah. winter salad that warmed up. Oh, you can even... Yeah. Incredible. I, I agree. I mean, really, it's the meat I, substitute. Yeah, and a salad, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. I like just the long wedges of it. Uh, I don't, you keep them nice and long, almost julienne type. I like them as crisp. I love them as desserts. They're, of course, wonderful with cheeses and some wines and some nice uh, dessert wines. On a sandwich. Yeah, yeah. You know, they take a little something to get used to. An apple, it's ready to eat. Uh, a pear, you have to ripen. So again, it, it takes a bit of effort on your end to handle it properly, to, to learn about its characteristics, to know is it ripe yet or not, and go through a little bit of a challenging time. Oh, that that's grainy and that's soft and that's overripe. So I don't know. That I, maybe I like the effort that goes into it. Wow, the season is here. Apples and there pears. Is. Yep. Yes. Thank Enjoy. you. I can't wait to have you back next week. This is uh, ah. my favorite time of the year. I know we say that about every time, but fall <laughs> and food, is there some something there go. else going on where that comfort that comes from the field and the trees right now is just preparing us well for, for winter? And yes. Yeah, it's very true. You know, we spend a little more time inside yeah. as, as we approach the cold weather and you spend a little more time cooking, a little more time it's lovely. and uh, get a little creative and You kind of enjoy the fruits. There you go, the fruits of your labor. That's right. Thank right. you so much, Earl. And that website is earlsorganic.com if you want to see yes. photos of all those, what's yes. coming up, what's in season, what's translating into your produce department right now. Thanks, Earl, for your, all your expertise and your time and your passion, and we'll have you back next week. Thank you, Helga. Thank you. Take, talk soon. Take care. Bye now. <laughs> Bye. Wow, another hour packed all about health, all about food. That was Earl Herrick of Earl's Organic Produce, What's in Season, and it is fall on every level. Go out, get a couple of items you really like, pears or apples or whatever it may be, and sit down and look at the fading sun and the changing light and enjoy that piece of fruit 
because this year is is quickly coming to an end. That's an organic conversation for this week. I'm Helge Helberg, and we'll be back with another episode next week. Thanks so much for listening. And that was this week's edition of An Organic Conversation. Thanks for listening. A big thank you to our associate producer, Kristen Ponger. An Organic Conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters. Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store, home, or business. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? Anyone can buy directly from Earl's Organic at wholesale prices. The website is earlsorganic.com. And also Fry Vineyards, America's first certified organic winery, producing organic and certified biodynamic wine without synthetic sulfites or other preservatives. Family owned and operated since 1980. Fry Vineyards, Mendocino County award-winning wines. For more information, frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. Thank you as well to Bowman College, focused on holistic nutrition and culinary arts for over 20 years. Bowman College offers professional training programs that prepare individuals for careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Their website is bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. I'm Helge Helberg, and we'll be back with another great episode right here. Same place, same time next week. See you then.